Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, listen to James Conlon, Richard Seaver Music Director for LA Opera, in his pre-performance lecture for Verdi's Aida, showing now at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. See LA Opera's Aida from May 21st to June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello, I'm James Conlon. Welcome to Los Angeles Opera, and welcome to our production of Aida. Giuseppe Verdi, with his hard-nosed realism, believed that happiness was difficult to attain, and, if attained, was fleeting at best. His operas tell us that repeatedly. And yet, we yearn to hear them over and over again. Through their music and pathos, we experience our own lives and seek our own transcendence, the same way we do when we listen to Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, and Wagner. Only the message is very much that of Verdi himself in his unmistakable voice. Verdi's opera Aida enjoyed a popular international success that broke all records following its premieres in Cairo and Milan, 1871 and 1872, respectively. Ten cities, including New York, Berlin, Vienna, and Buenos Aires, within two and a half years, 20 cities within three years, 30 cities within four, 40 within five, and 50 within 10 years. Since the Met premiere in 1886, it has been given 1,175 times, second only to La Boheme. Aida is an iconic opera, the very emblem of what opera is. It has never been absent from the world stage. Umberto Eco, writing on the functions of literature, could, to my mind, easily have said the same for music. I quote, We are surrounded by intangible powers, including literary tradition. The power of that network of text which humanity has produced for its own sake, for humanity's own enjoyment, and which are read for pleasure, spiritual edification, broadening of knowledge, or maybe just to pass the time. His words come to mind as I ask myself again, what makes Aida a great opera? And I have no better answer than, it just is. But Aida has also been disdained and dismissed, particularly in the late 19th century by the Wagnerites and German classic music lovers. Critics have rejected it as vulgar, pompous, dramatically inert, and just plain bad. The famous triumphal march was considered trash. Verdi didn't completely disagree with that viewpoint, but nevertheless can be recognized by people who have never attended an opera. That odor of condescension is still emitted in many quarters of the world today. In the late 20th century, both Aida, the opera, and Verdi, the person, came under withering criticism by Edward Said, for its exemplification of Orientalism, for all that is wrong with European colonialist arrogance. Now in the 21st centuries, some are wont to see it fail on the basis of political incorrectness or for being a, quote, museum opera. 
Now, it would take several hours to give those important subjects their due, but this is simply an introduction and a review of Verdi's musical art. To those who dismiss opera in general, and Italian opera specifically, I have nothing to say on this occasion, and I doubt anyone who falls into that category is watching this anyway. But I would need to remind all that Verdi was a man of the people who wrote for the public, did not care about his critics, nor did he write for them. He wanted his operas to be loved and enjoyed by the public. In this, he succeeded as few others in history. Although he was politically prominent, an icon for the unification and the emergence of the new Italian state, he really was not interested in political art. Yes, he tells stories with historical characters, often sophisticated ones, but he is never writing to make a critical point about those narratives, nor is he attentive to historical details and accuracy. He is interested in a good story, and he will dress up his characters in various garbs, but in the end, they always revolve around tragic love stories. A soprano and tenor in love, a baritone and or a mezzo-soprano who oppose that love, and a bass who looks on as some sort of authoritative figure. Aida is yet another example of the leading myth and governing model of the Italian 19th century, that of Romeo and Juliet. Ill-fated love contending with larger obstacles and powerful forces. The usual suspects are all to be found, the outsider, the marginalized, the unbending authoritarians, the conflict of love and duty, loyalty to the tribe, love, and jealousy. Aida has been criticized for being both too Egyptian and not Egyptian enough. Despite the contributions of a great French Egyptologist, Auguste Mariette, 1821-1881, the story could have taken place anywhere and nowhere. Once upon a time, never, never land. There is almost nothing historically accurate about it. Verdi didn't care about it, and therefore, I think, nor should we. What he did care about was a good story, with powerful emotions. Peter Conrad sums up Verdi's art in his brilliant book, Song of Love and Death. Quote, Verdi set the entire world to music. His operas encompassed the theocratic ancient Egypt of Aida and the bigoted Babylon of Nabucco, the imperial Spain of Don Carlos, and the licentious Italian Renaissance of Rigoletto, the provincial German courts of Louisa Miller, and the contemporary Parisian demi-monde of La Traviata. In him, the operatic world theater becomes truly global. The composer of Macbeth, Otello, and Falstaff is opera's Shakespeare. Verdi the populist is an expert on the human heart who commiserates with the slave Aida, the courtesan Violetta, and the cheerily dishonorable Falstaff, with the wandering mendicants of La Forza del Destino or the universal chorus whispering its prayer for peace in the Requiem. Like the chameleon Shakespeare, Verdi hears everyone at once and distributes music impartially to all. His ensembles compound opposite emotions as if a god were listening to the polyphonic hubbub of the human race. In the quartet from Rigoletto, Gilda's lament and her father's curses 
the Duke's philandering refrain and Maddalena's chuckling patter entwine and overlap. Musically, they're equivalent. And while they are singing, Verdi withholds judgment. It is impossible to draw any conclusions about Verdi's politics, prejudices, philosophies, or his intimate and personal thoughts on the evidence of his operas. He is as inscrutable and unknowable as Shakespeare. He does not moralize. We only know his characters. We do not know him. We know he likes subjects that tell the story of outsiders and society's outcasts and victims. Azucena, Rigoletto, Violetta, Aida, Don Carlo, Don Alvaro, Otello. He pits patriotic or societal duties demands against those of love. We know the stories will end tragically, but Verdi seems to want us to identify with the protagonist and experience their death as personal. We know we will see love, jealousy, hate, compassion, and kindness, violence, and cruelty. We will see and hear the human condition. And all the while, Verdi is sculpting and constantly modifying the musical tradition he had inherited and serving the theater and drama with infinite genius and dedication. In the end, once again, it is about the music, and it is the music that has turned his operas into classics that have stood the test of time and the culture of their births. Let's walk through the music now, as we often do, starting with one or two musical motives that you will be able to identify. It is important to remember that Verdi never really adopted Wagner's extensive use of the leitmotif, a leading motive, which we know from The Ring and from Tristan and Isolde. Verdi used his motives for occasional orientation, for reminiscences or character identification, but never as starting points or building blocks for musical development and variation in the manner that Wagner did. In Aida, there are very few, really just four. One for Aida, two for her rival, Amneris, the Egyptian princess, and one for the high priests. As is his usual practice, Verdi presents some of them in the prelude, thus identifying an important dramatic overview to indicate what the public will be hearing and witnessing. In his 26 operas, Verdi alternated between beginning with preludes, short introductions, and full-blown overtures, extended orchestral pieces with usually loud applause-inviting conclusions. His illustrious predecessor, Rossini, master of the overture, eventually rejected them and preferred a scene-setting prelude. His comment was, paraphrased, why does the public need a form of entertainment before getting down to business? Verdi started his career in the 1840s, writing overtures, but soon started challenging their presence until the prelude eventually won out. Aida is the last prelude, and in Verdi's final operas, Otello and Falstaff, it was completely eliminated. The prelude was performed at the opera's premiere in Cairo, and then Verdi subsequently wrote an overture for the premiere in Milan, which he then withdrew. It was actually not to be played until 1940 by Arturo Toscanini. It is rarely performed in concert and almost never, at least that I know of, in performances of the opera. 
the prelude as befitting the last one Verdi was to write is a minor masterpiece of concision and expression. Aida's motive, that of the Ethiopian princess in captivity, the slave of the Egyptian king's daughter, is played quietly at first by the violins. It is both gracefully earthbound in its physical delicacy, but reaches toward heaven in the manner of Wagner's Lohengrin, which, by the way, Verdi had recently seen in Bologna. She and her motive are hauntingly beautiful. On a symbolic level, it represents the realm of love. As its polar opposite, we meet the sacerdoti, the high priests. Whereas Aida's motive points upward, theirs appears in the bass instruments and descends towards some form of inferno. They are portrayed throughout the opera by a rigid, unbending march-like fugue, a form Verdi hated from his conservatory days. They and their motive are bereft of love and humanity. Once again, Verdi expresses his deep-seated hostility towards the clergy, and they, as they do in his preceding opera, Don Carlo, represent harsh authoritarian rule. Symbolically, they are a death force, opposed to Aida's life-affirming force of love. The two motives interact in the prelude. The opposing forces that will govern the opera have been set out. We next will meet Radames, captain of the guard, in love with Aida, but who is desired by the king's daughter Amneris. Thus, a classical triangular rivalry is established, one tenor and two sopranos. His great conflict will be love versus duty. Although his innate optimism will lead him to think he can fulfill the contradictory demands of love and patriotism, reality will intervene he will fail. He does not get his own motive, but he is introduced to us with two aspects of his personality. The first is that of the heroic soldier. And the second is the man who loves Aida. His melodic romancer looks upward 
towards Aida and the sun, high violins illuminate him. Aida's rival has two motives. The first is regally slow and establishes her as the king's daughter through its expansive confidence. At the same time, it is beautiful, sensuous, and sinuous. Amneris, too, is in love, and the presentation of all of this in her motive establishes her as someone with whom one can trifle only at their own expense. Amneris's second theme is associated with her inner agitation, her jealousy, her vindictiveness. The daughter of the king is accustomed to having her own way. When she does not have it, her second theme flares up. In Verdi's words, like a caged animal. Here it is in a purely orchestral excerpt. Now let's listen to it again in its first appearance. Follow the violins in this trio underneath the voices. Abneris confronts Radames and Aida intuits trouble ahead. Aida has been described as a ceremonial opera. It was commissioned for the opening of the Suez Canal, so its monumentality was almost inborn. The king, Rumphis the high priest, and their followers are the authoritarian rulers, and their presence on stage is often static, monolithic, and grandiose. It is Verdi's final encounter with Grand Opera. After Don Carlo, which was an adventurous opera which stretched the art form, Verdi consolidates his progress in Aida, his most classical work. It is built of large granite architectural blocks which remain unmoved while the personal tragedy of the protagonists is played out. This opera sums up so many Verdian developments. It is noteworthy that his next work, The Requiem, 1874, is fully ceremonial static. The triumphal scene, 
and the Act IV judgment scene particularly pave the way for the Requiem. Verdi's monumental classical opera also marks an exclamation point in his life. Aside from several revisions of Don Carlo and one of Simon Boccanegra, he will not write another opera until Otello emerges after a decade and a half of retirement. Illustrating the ceremonious aspect, here is the entrance of the godlike king. messenger has reported that an enemy to the realm, the Ethiopians, are attacking. The king announces, of course with the approval of the high priests, that Radames has been appointed to lead the armies against the attackers. His dreams of glory are to be fulfilled, and Amneris swells with pride, hoping he will win the battle and she his affections. Only Aida, in a private turmoil, must choose between her people and the man she loves. A wild call for war and death to the enemy. Amneris calls out, Ritorna vincitor, return victoriously. And all, including Aida, repeat this. This sets up one of the key moments and great creations of the Mature Verdi. Aida's monologue, no conventional aria, is one whose form has evolved out of the dramatic situation. This development, drama determining form, will become the foundation of Otello and Falsta. In contrast to Radames' opening romanza, which is beautiful but fully standard in its form, we are led into Aida's interior complexity and the contradictions of her situation. I invite you to familiarize yourself with Ritorno Vincitor. For the moment, we will hear the final section, which epitomizes Aida's dilemma, and which Verdi will bring back again in the second act as a painful reminiscence of her emotions.
Now back to ceremony, ritual, and stasis in a scene in which nothing really happens. Remember the number three. It will be the architectural structure of much of the ritual in this scene and throughout the opera. First, to the accompaniment of harps, a high priestess of the Temple of Vulcan, so described by Verdi, prays to the principal god of Memphis, Phtah. She is joined by both priestesses and priests. The music is heavily imbued with supposed Middle Eastern music, which so much fascinated Europeans in all of the arts in the 19th century. A 20th century critique of Orientalism as an expression of European colonialism and arrogance must be noted, although a more complete discussion of that is beyond the scope of this talk. It also bears mentioning that Verdi had scant interest in authenticity and wrote music that described Egyptian antiquity, quote, as I imagined it, unquote. The opening chorus is in three parts. The priestesses dance, again, note the orientalism of the music. Verdi was always required to write ballets when his operas were produced in Paris, whether world or French premieres. He wrote them because he had to, and though occasionally they are of great quality, one often senses that his heart was not in them. Aida, on the other hand, was conceived with dance, and his ballet music, especially in the triumphal scene of Act II, is amongst the best he ever wrote. Ramphis leads a prayer to the gods, asking them to protect the Egyptian lands, and Radames joins him. Then, together with all of the priests and priestesses, we get a strong foretaste of the Requiem, next work up on the assembly line. Thunderous conclusion in the presence of the deity, foreseeing by more than two decades a similar ending of one of his last works, the Tadeo. Just as we met Radames in Act I, first through a military fanfare, the women start in a warlike march before adopting a more romantic and sensual tone. Let flowers rain down on your head to compete with the laurels of victory. 
The third part is taken over by Amneris, smoldering with love and desire for Radames. After which we return to parts two and three of the women's chorus and Amneris's final private reverie. But on to business. She is troubled that Radames may secretly love Aida, and she intends to find out. At first, employing a variation on her principal motive, she feigns interest in Aida's well-being until she is able to wheedle out some information. At first, she implies that Radames has died in battle. She observes Aida's grief. She then turns it around. Radames, in fact, lives. Aida rejoices, and Amneris attacks. First she threatens. Tremble, I have read your thoughts. When Aida realizes that she has revealed her love and has almost let the information slip that she too is a princess, she begs mercy. The contrast in the expression of the two women is powerful. <laughs> Tremble, vile slave, declaims Amneris. She swoops out to prepare for the triumphal scene, and Aida remains alone to reprise her Act One lamentation. Numi pieta, gods have mercy. Oh, <laughs> 
In the manner of the famous Roman triumphs, the spoils of war and captured enemy soldiers are brought before the people and the king. This scene is the culmination of Verdi's ceremonial art and is without parallel in Italian opera, richly combining the chorus representing, in turn, the populace, the high priests, the ministers, the captains, the Ethiopian victims. Soldiers play supposed Egyptian trumpets. The king is brought in on his throne. The army marches by. And yes, there have been productions with elephants, though there is no sign of them in Verdi's scenario. Stage trumpets and brass choir are featured prominently throughout from the beginning. The populace sings to the glory of Egypt. Women add their sensuous songs and dances as a contrast. The ubiquitous, ever-controlling, ever-vigilant high priests have their eye on everything and everyone, even the king. The famous triumphal march is sounded on trumpets, which, though thoroughly inauthentic, were meant to inspire visions of a faraway land in ancient time. One of Verdi's best, if not the best, ballets. All of the war trophies are brought before the populace and presented to the king. Now, as it does in the famous Alto da Fe scene from Don Carlo, a personal drama is introduced. Aida recognizes her father. He whispers to her to keep his true identity hidden. He is, of course, Amonazro, king of the Ethiopians. He was believed, and still is by the Egyptians, to have perished in the battle. We will witness yet another powerful portrayal of fathers in conflict with their children following a long Verdian tradition, reminiscent of Luisa Miller and Rigoletto, we have two fathers, the king of Egypt 
and king of Ethiopia, and their princess daughters, Amneris and Aida, respectively. The captured Ethiopian claims to have defended his now-dead king, and he invents an efficient cover story. Aida and his people understand where he is going. His tone changes from menacing to compliant, and he throws himself, on behalf of the Ethiopians, on the mercy of the Egyptian king. All join in, pleading, today we are struck by fate. Tomorrow, fate could strike you. Therefore, implicitly, please be merciful. All present react. Ramphis and the priests first with an outburst opposing any mercy. Let the will of the gods be fulfilled and they be slaughtered to death. The people, moved to compassion, plead for the Ethiopian captives. Amira smolders with jealousy and plots vengeance against Aida. Radames, seeing Aida's compassion and distress, is more in love than ever. Verdi composes an extended concertato for this movement. This is a form that has been omnipresent in Italian opera for the entire 19th century. It usually closes the first half of an opera and gathers virtually all of the principal singers, entire chorus and orchestra, in a static moment and makes a powerful musical statement, which sounds like what its name concertato suggests, a concert. Verdi had a troubled relationship with the concertato all of his life. In this case, he clearly saw its dramatic utility and surpassed himself. Radames pleads to free the Ethiopian victims. Ramphis argues against it. A compromise is struck with the king. The Egyptians will hold Aida's father as hostage and then announces that he will give Amneris in marriage to Radames. Aida is thunderstruck. In a second reprise of the concertato, you will hear the praise of the people mixed with the controlling motor rhythm of the high priests charging through the entire procedure. Notwithstanding the great music throughout the opera Aida, the triumphal scene alone would have ensured its great universal success and its enduring popularity.
The second part of the opera takes a sharp turn inward into the essence of Verdi's humanity and dramatic genius. Most of the pomp and monumentality now has passed, and we are exposed to quintessential Verdi, the intimate human drama. The chorus, regaining its initial functions from Act One, Scene Two, retreats off stage to fulfill its religious rituals. The king does not reappear. In Act Three, the deep beauty of a moonlit evening, as imagined by Verdi, is evoked by orchestral colors of rare delicacy. One can almost hear the crickets and the insects, along with the gentle breeze emanating from the Nile River. First, we concentrate on Aida alone, then in confrontation with her father, and then with her lover. Her aria, O Patria Mia, My Homeland, evokes a deep nostalgia and connection to her native land, which she believes she will never see again. My pew are the key words, never again. Her conflict is simple to explain and impossible to resolve. She loves the Egyptian hero who has defeated her people and must choose between them. Compositionally, Verdi increasingly favored musical continuity, moving away from the closed forms with concerted applause-seeking endings he inherited. He now constructs a continuous act where there are no interruptions. It goes from Aida's aria through a pair of duets, first with her father Amonazro, then with her lover Radames, culminating with a trio for all three. A quick coda is attached and the act comes to a violent close. And what an act it is, old-fashioned in the formal sense that each duet, sometimes described as similar, consists of an extended musical paragraph that is then repeated by the second character. Yet the musical material is new and adventuresome. The plaintive ornamental faux oriental oboe solo expresses Aida's inner pain as she sings of her homeland in O Patria Mia. The aria has two verses, the second a variation on the first. Here, you're listening to Leontine Price for more than a generation, the reigning Aida of her time. The aria finishes with an ethereal and very difficult climax, with the words, Non ti vedrò mai più, I will not see you anymore, that is, her country.
Now her father Amonazro will confront her. We and she do not doubt his love for her, but, and this is a big contradiction, not so much that he will not manipulate her, pulling on her heartstrings and the memory of her deceased mother to abandon her love and help save her people. He starts by evoking their return to Ethiopia, to where she could flee with Radames and where she will find homeland, a throne, and love. Aida repeats the same melody back. Then Amonazro lowers the boom and basically asks her to obtain military secrets from Radames. She refuses, and he blasts off in a torrent of guilt-provoking images. Arise, you Egyptian cohorts, destroy our Ethiopian cities, spread terror, slaughter, and death. He concludes by disowning her. You are not my daughter. You are the slave of the pharaohs. She, broken, weeps. You can still call me your daughter. I will be worthy of my country. In one magnificent, uninterrupted sweep, Amonazro continues the phrase, think that a people defeated and tormented through you alone can rise again. And she finishes his phrase and the duet all uninterrupted, crying out, O patria, patria, quanto mi costi. O homeland, how much you cost me. Enter Radames, another so-called similar duet in several uninterrupted sections. He must convince her that he will not marry Amneris. She suggests fleeing and then evokes an idyllic future in Ethiopia. The duet concludes with a cabaletta in the old style, rapid, repetitive, and fast. One detail she must ask him, however. Where will the Egyptian army assemble? In the gorge of Napata, replies Radames. Awonazro reveals himself and says he will station his troops there. Radames realizes he has revealed a military secret. Io son disonorato. I have dishonored myself. A very short trio ensues. Amneris and Ramphis appear, having overheard Radames' betrayal. Awonazro drags Aida off with him into the night. Radames, trying to maintain what is left of his honor, surrenders to the high priest. The act comes to a roaring conclusion. We have returned to Memphis, as in the first act. The Ethiopians have been defeated. Amonazro has been killed. Aida has disappeared. Radames is awaiting trial, accused of being a traitor. This is Amneris' scene. We hear her agitation motive, bookended by the woodwinds with a quotation from Act Two. 
that of her father's promise that she would wed Radames. Her motive, presented in overlapping polyphonic iterations, gives the sense of unraveling, a musical depiction of her inner turmoil. First, she hurls her hostility at the world, but then, to her first motive, admits that she still loves Radames. She knows the priests will condemn Radames, but if he will promise to marry her, she will beg her father to pardon him. Verdi provides us once again with a similar duet, in which both characters sing the same music in sequence, the second with variations. In each case, Amneris leads and Radames responds. Amneris initiates the second section, a passionate declaration of love to Radames, to whom she will give patria, trono, evita. Those words again, country, throne, and life. Aida offered them to him in the Nile scene. Radames responds in another similar section, taking the same melody, arguing back that he has betrayed his country and honor, and he has no desire to live without Aida. Amneris eventually tells him that Aida is alive and she will save his life if he renounces her. He will not. She gives him a last chance. No. Amneris explodes in a jealous fury. Radames, in more measured tones, welcomes death as a blessing. The tension rises to a final fast coda and then to a terrifying and violent outburst from the orchestra Radames is led away to his trial. Amneris is now devastated with regret, fears the worst. The orchestra intones the priest's theme, finally roaring it out as Amneris cries, Oh, Kilo Salva, who will save him? The offstage priest's chorus now intones a Gregorian-like passage. Highly anachronistic, of course. Doubly so. The Egyptians obviously didn't employ Gregorian chant, and the music he writes is fake Gregorian. It's not written in any of the ancient modes and operates within the realm of functional contemporary harmony. Nevertheless, it is an effect he presumed to which his Roman Catholic public would relate. Now remember the number three. Every phrase and musical gesture will be given three times. Ramphis calls out Radames' name. The brass instruments play the rapid death motive of three notes, omnipresent in Verdi's opera since the beginning. Three accusations, intoned as if it were in Gregorian chants. Defend yourself. He is silent. Traitor. Amneris cries out. 
pietà, lumi, salvatelo. Ah, gods, show him mercy. Everything in threes. They condemn him to be buried alive. As it reaches a climax, Amneris implores the priests, and they humiliate the princess with their refusal. Three more times, traditor, traitor, and Amneris curses them in eternity. Wicked race curses on all of you. Heaven's vengeance will descend upon you. Through Amneris's mouth, Ferdi expresses once again his deep-seated abiding hatred for the clergy. The orchestra hurls out the curse, three loud trills, the trill which will subsequently become the trademark of the personification of evil, Otello's nemesis, Yaro. The final scene shows a split stage, Verdi's own conception, the high altar above and the tomb, which is now closed, below. Radames has been delivered to his fate. When the stone is well sealed inside the tomb, he discovers Aida. She intuited his fate and placed herself there to await him. Their farewell to life is amongst the most sublime Verdi ever wrote. The orchestra inhabits the upper register, high violins and trembling strings in a flat key, all of which he has used to extraordinary effect at the end of La Forza del Destino and will again in the Requiem. The afterlife is envisioned as a faint, radiant light. The final duet is a cabaletta, that vestigial structure that Verdi had systematically dismantled over a lifetime but it is a cavaletta in form only. The content and substance has been totally transformed from those of his youth. Instead of a strongly, rhythmically energized finale, it is without time, without pulse. Aida sings alone, Radames alone, then the two together, finally adding Amneris, who, from above the tomb, is fated to continue to live bereft of her love. The violins have the last word, a mirror image to the prelude to act one, where they had the first word. Amneris softly prays, I implore peace for you, beloved. May Isis be placated, 
and open up the heavens to you. Her prayerful attitude will pass into the universalized voice of the mezzo-soprano of the Requiem. In these final bars, Verdi, having completed his most classical and monumental opera, leaves the world of grand opera, closes the door on much of his past, and opens the way, first to its epilogue, the Requiem Mass, and much later to the two masterpieces of his old age, Otello and Falstaff. See L.A. Opera's Aida from May 21st to June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Thank you.